Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hill Spring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Happy New Year and all that other stuff. You guys glad you came to church today? Man, I'm, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to be alive today. 25-year-old woman about killed me this week. It was crazy. I'm glad to be anywhere today. Um, woke up the other day and just felt like my body needed to stretch a little bit, so I went on Amazon Prime and did a 15-minute yoga workout for beginners. I almost died in that. Like, that was not, and you want to talk about some of the ugly, my body does not do that, y'all. So I will tell you this. My wife changed my life this morning. We're on the way driving into church, and she said, oh, by the way, I read the other day that they are saying it's no longer good to have a six-pack. Can I get an amen, somebody? Like, I don't need to hear anything else. Like, I don't need to hear the explanation for that. I'm just all in on that. Like, no, you, you need to have some cushion. That's what we call it, cushion to protect your internal organs. I just changed some of y'all's life this morning. Can I get an amen? Hey, a couple of things. We are in the middle of the 21 days of prayer and fasting, and, and we'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. And if you're a guest with us, just... just Calm down, we're not gonna hand out snakes or Kool-Aid or any of that. So, But uh, a great resource, maybe while you're in this 21 days of prayer and fasting, is a book written by Chris Hodges. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. He pastors Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama. They're an amazing church, do amazing work, not only in Alabama, but with churches around the United States and around the globe. And so if you're looking, like looking for a book on prayer, he wrote this book called Prayer First. We have this in our resource room just past the coffee shop you can you can purchase that there and then kind of a cool thing and i know i've talked a little bit about this but this past year my mom finally published a book and um, it's not necessarily fitting for every scenario every situation but it's a book called there's life after tragedy it really tells the story of my family my mom's family and um I don't necessarily want to go to and at some point this year i'm gonna have her come in and we'll, we'll talk what's about in here and we all go through loss we all go through grief or maybe in the coming year, you may know somebody that could use this. And it's really just, just the story of how a family, our family, how a family made a decision that we're not going to let tragedy define who we are. We're going to protect the next generations and make sure that this tragedy doesn't define who they are. That's also available out in our resource area if you'd like to do that. One more quick thing, and I'll jump in. If you've got your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 12. And put a finger in Mark chapter 1 because that's where we're going to be. But we are, um, if, if you're new to Hillspring, kind of like some more information or how do I get connected or what's that, we kind of offer an orientation. It's called Step 1. And it's Growth Track. And that will be this Wednesday at 6.30. I hope you'll come and I'll be there and just spend some great time with you. It usually takes us about an hour, hour and a half to do that. And so if you'd like to come and jump in, maybe you want some more time to kind of put your feet in the water. We certainly understand that. I think we've all had those things where you look back on them you just kind of embarrassed. You kind of want to pull the blanket up over your head and go, oh, what was I thinking? You know, you want to crawl under the table. Hopefully nobody saw that. Like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? So it was 1986. I lived in Ardmore, Oklahoma. I was a fifth grader at Plainview Elementary. And as best I recall, we had two recesses a day. We had a morning recess and then we had an afternoon recess. And then, of course, there was lunch. If you ate your lunch early enough, fast enough, you could go out and, and, and you could play. And recess was the second best part of the day if you were a fifth-grade boy at Plainview Elementary in 1986. 
And I, th- I think this is a real thing. I haven't seen one in several years. Maybe COVID did away. I don't know. But they used to sell these big suckers that were like a big ball, and they had all these different flavors, kind of like a fundraiser thing. So back in 1986, you could buy a sucker for 25 cents. Today, they're like $17. I don't, I don't know. I mean, inflation's a thing, right? So, but they would come on the morning announcements, and they would, if you'll just excuse me, I'm trying to create the morning announcements. You know. Today at lunch, the middle school cheerleaders will be here selling suckers. And if you're a fifth grade boy at Plainview Elementary, you heard cheerleader. I'm just telling you, I don't like it, no matter what they're selling and buying, right? Don't judge me, okay? And so um, if you're a fifth grade boy and seventh grade cheerleaders show up to sell suckers, that is the best part of the day, okay? So when she looks at you and kind of flatters her eyes, knowing she's gonna make some money off of you, she says, what flavor do you want? And you go, Hi. <laughs> I will, hi. Uh, I, I don't care. And then, like, you give her your quarter and you walk away with battery acid flavor sucker. I don't know, like, pickled, who wants pickle juice? This stink, you know. But that's not the worst part of the whole story. The worst part of the story is I have completely ruined my chances of her being my girlfriend. Like, I'm out, you know. So it was a beautiful day. In Ardmore, Oklahoma, they make the announcement, middle school cheerleaders will be selling suckers at lunch. And for the record, first service was rolling in the floor by this point in the story. You people need to wake it up right now. All right. (laughs) Middle school cheerleaders will be selling suckers at lunch. And so I had practiced my words. I knew exactly which flavor I want. I was ready this time. And we walk out there, beeline right to where the cheerleaders normally are. And... That day, the cheerleaders had snookered, convinced, I don't know, some sixth grade kid with nappy hair to do their job for them that day. There was not a cheerleader in sight, just this one sixth grade boy selling suckers. Imagine my disappointment. Looked at my buddy Danny, I said, hey Danny, look, the cheerleaders are selling suckers. And that sixth grade boy with nappy hair heard me, to which he said, I'm telling the principal, you're going to get in trouble. Uh-oh. I had no clue what Miss Bueller taught the rest of the afternoon. My palms were sweaty. I was scared to death. I did not want to hear that sound. Miss Bueller, can you send Brent Kellogg to the office so he can get SWAT? I did not want to hear that come over that PA system, right? Like, I don't remember anything she, I don't remember fifth grade, really. That was a torturous afternoon. But nothing happened. Three o'clock bell rang, and you can imagine my sigh of relief, only to expect and lose sleep over the night, thinking when I get back to school tomorrow, though, Mr. Buck, the principal, he's going to be waiting at the door for me. And we make it till about noon, and nothing had happened, and some of that anxiety had kind of slipped away. I am to this day still waiting for Mr. Buck's office to call me out of class and give me detention for making fun of a sixth grade boy with nappy hair. One of those moments, like when you look back on it, it's like, oh, why did I do that? Oh, my God. It caused me massive amount of trauma. Trauma. Not only was it kind of stupid, but I feel really stupid for how much I worried and the anxiety I had thinking I was going to get in trouble. We all have those moments. Maybe they're trivial, like making fun of a sixth grade boy with nappy hair and calling him a cheerleader. Or it could be something big and stupid where you put your foot in your mouth or what have you. We all have those embarrassing moments in life that we learn from. And for me, I don't want to repeat them. 
But those moments are how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we fail forward, learning from life's difficult, embarrassing, challenging moments. This is the story of one of the characters we're going to look at today as we embark upon this new journey, starting a brand new series called Walking with Jesus. Over the next several years, weeks, we're going to walk through the gospel of Mark. And for several reasons, I picked Mark's gospel, and you'll see the characteristics of that as we walk on this journey and unpack all of these stories. Most scholars believe that Mark's gospel was the first one of the four to be written. About telling the story and recording. Really, he was after recording the sermons of Jesus. What you're going to learn is Mark's kind of a get-to-work kind of guy. At least in his writings. Like, he grabs your attention with powerful action words. He gets right to the point of the story. He doesn't give a lot of detail. Just want you to understand the bottom line of what happened. Many times, Mark uses words like immediately or suddenly. There's kind of an up-tempo pace. Mark's telling of Jesus' story. The theory goes Mark wrote his gospel first, then Matthew saw that, took it, and expanded upon it. So Matthew would then write his gospel, taking Mark's timeline, Mark's details, and then just adding some information to it. But before we get into Mark's telling of the story of Jesus, I want to take just a little bit of time today to tell Mark's story, Mark's personal story. Testimony. So before we get to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, I want to just kind of take a little detour to Acts chapter 12, where for the first time in Scripture, we actually meet this character named Mark, but he's going to carry a different name in the book of Acts. You're going to see him named John Mark. Acts chapter 12, verse 11, it says, Peter finally had come to his senses. It's really true. The Lord has sent me his angel and saved me from Herod from what the Jewish leaders had planned for me. Context. Peter had been arrested. Peter was in prison. And that night, God sent an angel to help him escape, to walk him out of prison. And Peter don't know if I'm dreaming. Is this a vision? What's happening? And that verse begins, Peter finally came to his senses like, this is real. An angel really helped me escape. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary. Full disclosure, Mary is a common name in this time in history. But it gives this quantifying clarification about who Mary is. Mary, the mother of John, Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. So we think the home of Mary was a common place where Christians, followers of Christ, disciples, they would gather many times to pray. The church was in its infancy. Some of those first church services would happen in the home of Mary. So in the following chapter, in Acts chapter 13, we see John Mark in his name again. This time, the elders at the church of Antioch are in a season of prayer and fasting, much like our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And they felt led by the Holy Spirit to pray for and commission, lay hands on. They were sending out two gentlemen by the name of Barnabas. At first, you'll see him named Saul, but that Saul would eventually become Paul, the apostle. He would write two-thirds of the New Testament. So Acts chapter 13, verse 4. So Barnabas and Saul, and right here in the stories where you'll see his name change, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, down, then sailed for the island of Cyprus, there in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and they preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. So they embark out on this mission trip. 
Barnabas was actually one of the first Christians to kind of accept Saul. If you remember in Saul's former life, he was persecuting, even trying to kill Christians. And so when he was converted, hey, I'm one of you guys now. They're like, not so fast. I'm not falling for, you know, the secret FBI agent being embedded into the church. And so Barnabas took a chance and Barnabas mentored him. And Barnabas was one of the first people in the Christian movement to kind of take Paul under his wing. And now Paul and Barnabas are going out on a mission journey. And it says right here that John Mark went with them as their assistant. Little fun fact. Colossians chapter four tells us that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. And you'll see how that ties together because Barnabas, like he went to bat for Paul, also will go to bat for John Mark. Acts chapter 13, verse 13, Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, leading at the port town of Perga. There John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know why. We don't know why he went back. The Bible doesn't tell us. Was he homesick? Was he physically sick? Leave the, on, leave the oven on? I don't know. Did he run out of vacation time? I don't know. I just, for some reason, it just says, and John Mark left and returned home. And when you read that, you're like, okay, no big deal. Cool. John Mark went back home. Fine. Until you get to Acts chapter 15, you think there's really not much to that story. And then when you get to Acts chapter 15, you see there's more to the story than John Mark just left. So Acts chapter 15, verse 36, if you're still with me, say amen. amen. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we had previously preached, like that mission trip we took, let's go back and check on those Christians to see how the new believers are doing. Verse 37, Barnabas agreed, and he wanted to take along John Mark. Verse 38, but Paul disagreed strongly. Since John Mark now, he says, had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark, went to bat for him. Barnabas took John Mark with him and they sailed for Cyprus. And then Paul took a man named Silas. And as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. The New Living Translation, typically what I preach out of, typically what I read of, it takes a little bit of liberty with that disagreement thing. It just says the King James, the original language, or the original English translate that, that Paul just thought it was not good to take John Mark. So you can see John Mark now becomes an issue. It was a big enough issue that it's going to cause this division between Paul and Barnabas. Imagine being John Mark there that day. You show up to get on the boat, and Paul's like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't trust him. He abandoned us. I'm not taking anybody with me on these top trips that's going to abandon us that I can't count on. Imagine being John Mark in that moment because now you see guys that were friends literally having an argument about you. John Mark had a choice. Let his failure knock him out of the game and go, hey, you know what? I won't. You guys just, just, you guys just go ahead. Or he could get up, rebound, get back to work, and not let his mistakes define him. So how does John Mark go from deserting Paul and Barnabas to the John Mark that would write the first story of Jesus in written word and write the first gospel? Well, that goes back to Acts chapter 12 where this little journey began. Remember Peter was in prison? Angel comes and rescues him. When Peter got out of prison, he went to the home of Mary the mother of John Mark, where they were gathered for prayer. Now, 
tradition. This is not in scripture. This is kind of church history, church tradition. It's quite possible that John Mark came from a family of means. One writer even suggested that they owned the Garden of Gethsemane. None of that is scriptural. It's just kind of church tradition. But they do believe that John Mark's family was a family of means. We never hear of his father. His mother owns this home. His home is clearly big enough that some of the early church services took place there. It was the common place where disciples and believers would come and gather, and they would pray, and they would fellowship. Matter of fact, when Peter got out of prison, when he was released, he knew where to go. He knew to go to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, because there would be Christians gathered there. Meaning, John Mark had exposure and more than likely had a relationship with Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' three closest disciples. So John Mark literally was discipled. He had this strong relationship with Peter. So much so that, I'm going to show you one more verse, in 1 Peter chapter 5, this is a letter that, that Peter is writing. This is the language he uses to describe John Mark. He says, your sister church here in Babylon, most likely that means Rome. He's talking code talk. Like Babylon, he was saying here, from your sister church in, in the pit of evil, basically what he's calling Rome. From your sister church here in, in Rome sends your greetings, and so does my son Mark. Most theologians believe that's John Mark. Because Peter went to John Mark's house where he grew up, and Peter now refers to him as my son, Mark. And that was very common in those days because Paul would refer to Timothy, his disciple, was not biologically related, but he would say, Timothy, my true son in the faith. Peter uses the same language to describe Mark. Mark, my son. There's some debate, if you want to dig into Mark, you'll find this. Some people think Mark saw, knew, walked with, even was a follower of Jesus. Some theologians think he was possibly one of the 70. I don't know. There's some cases that can be made that it was him. But the prominent theory, even if he did follow Jesus, is that the gospel of Mark and the stories and the sermons are from Peter's information. That Peter was the source of Mark's gospel. That's how Mark's gospel could be included in the New Testament canon. Now I know what you're thinking. I wish he was done so we could go to lunch. But I know what this side's thinking. Mark's probably a common name. Mary's a common name. John's a common name. And you're right, it is possible that there are multiple Marks in the New Testament. It could be one Mark that wrote the gospel is a different Mark that abandoned Paul and Barnabas. But the language doesn't read that way. The language in the context reads always like, you know Mark. You know I'm talking about Mark. You know Mark, the man that needs no introduction. There's always this known familiarity among the circle of Peter and Paul and the early disciples. You know, Mark, you know who I'm talking about. So if this is the same Mark, you do begin to see good news. That eventually Mark, who abandoned Paul and Barnabas, he would mend his relationship with Paul at some point. Matter of fact, they would actually eventually become really close companions. He would be considered a co-worker of Paul's. So from the time he abandoned them, let's go 20 years later in the story. 
Paul would write this about him. In the last letter that we have that Paul wrote is 2 Timothy. He would say this about Mark. It's his last letter. Only Luke, by the way, that's the Luke that wrote the gospel. Only Luke is here with me. But would you bring Mark when you come? Because the guy that once abandoned me, I think he will be helpful to me in my ministry. In Acts chapter 15, nope. He quit. He abandoned us. I don't trust him. He's not going. 20 years later, hey, could you, uh, could you have Mark come here? I think he'll be most helpful in our ministry here. Also in Paul's letter to Philemon, he says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke. And he refers to them in this collective, my co-workers. He refers to Mark as a co-worker. So maybe one of the greatest lessons that we can learn from Mark is not only in the stories and the words he tells of Jesus, but how do you make a comeback? When Mark had been labeled as a quitter, as a flight risk, how do you make a comeback? How do you grow and learn and become the guy that now people ask for in their time of need? One of, I think, the big lessons from Mark's life, not necessarily from Mark's gospel, but from Mark's life, is failure is not final. I feel like I need to pause and stop here and clarify because we are in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting. If you fast and fail daily, you need to check yourself. I just felt like I need to clarify that. Oh, you know, it's not, failure's not, you know. Failure is not final. And it seems like God has a way of choosing imperfect people to carry out his mission. I wonder if that day when John Mark abandoned Paul and Bartimus and he went back home, did that day haunt him? Like if I could go back, I would have just pushed through however hard it was. Did he just, was he kind of embarrassed? Did he want to just kind of pull the blanket over his head? Did he want to forget that choice he made that day? Did Mark spend the rest of his life trying to compensate for that mistake? Maybe John Mark's words let me say that again. Maybe John Mark's wrongs are what inspired his words. Maybe that's why the tone of his gospel has an urgency to it. Maybe that's why he is the most active of the gospel. He gets to the point. Every one of us has moments like John Mark. You've disappointed someone. You didn't have the strength. You didn't have the stomach to go through a tough season. You quit way too soon. And just like John Mark, you and I have a choice. Would quitting be the sum of his story or would he learn from his failings and move forward? Lesson from Mark's life. Failure is not final. Amen, everybody? So Mark wastes no time in his gospel. Like it would take Matthew three chapters to get to where Mark gets in one, okay? And in Mark chapter one, he tells about the person of John the Baptist and how Isaiah the prophet prophesied about him. He, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and then he just gets right to Jesus being baptized. Let's just get to business. Matthew starts with his lineage and the birth, and Luke talks about the birth, and like, Mark, let's just go. Let's just, let's just go. He's very active, verse nine. 
Mark chapter 1. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly beloved son and it brings, you bring me great joy. There's a lot of theology right there in verse 11. Mark doesn't give a lot of detail about Jesus' baptism. Matthew and Luke give some more information. Matthew gives a detail the others push away from because when Jesus shows up for John the Baptist to baptize him, John the Baptist initially doesn't want to. There's this reluctance from John to baptize. He knew who he was. He was his cousin. John knew his calling. I'm here to declare. There's one coming that's greater. I might baptize with water. There's one coming to baptize the Holy Spirit. And Jesus shows up, gets down in the water, and John's like, no, 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 no. I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus is like, hey, let's do this to fulfill righteousness. Okay. What Matthew's doing is hinting at a big issue. Like if you just read Mark, oh, cool, Jesus was baptized. So was I, it's awesome. I got the certificate. But Matthew's hinting at something because John's baptism is described as a baptism of repentance. Let me show it to you in in Mark, Mark chapter one, verse four. It says the messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness. He preached that people should be Baptized to show, that to show is important, that they had repented. John's was a baptism of repentance. They turned from their sin, turned to God to be forgiven. So that gives a little bit of insight of why John was reluctant to baptize Jesus. Why would Jesus need to repent? Jesus had no sin. Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. He was perfect. Jesus had not sinned. He had nothing to repent for. And John is there baptizing people who needs to repent. So when Jesus gets in the water, John's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know who you are. I know you haven't sinned. I don't don't need to baptize you. So why did Jesus get baptized? Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. On top of all that, baptism is kind of a Christianity thing. It's a Christian thing. Like, you don't read in the Old Testament and hear where Abraham was baptized. You don't read in the Old Testament and see where David or Isaiah or Ezekiel, where these guys were baptized. So why was John even baptizing people to begin with? Where did that come from? And so if you'll just humor the history-loving Brent, I probably should have worn a sweater vest to look more like a history professor, but this is how we do it. In 1946, something actually happened that kind of helped shape our theology around this. A Bedouin shepherd, okay, and that's basically he was a nomad shepherd. These guys just kind of lived out in the wilderness with their sheep, okay? But a Bedouin shepherd and a guy by the name of Mohammed Ed Dehib. He goes into this little cave. One history story says he fell into the cave, but he goes into this little cave, and when he comes out of this cave, he comes out with this handful of scrolls. And these shepherd guys, they didn't know what to do with them. They'd like just kind of let them hang around for just several weeks. And finally, they found a shoe cobbler. Great name. But he was also a part-time antique enthusiast. And this antique enthusiast gave them seven Jordanian pounds, equivalent then, 1946, to about $28. In today's economy, it's $4 million, 300, no, 
No, it's actually about today's equivalent, about $340 is what, what they paid for this. The next year, these scrolls had caught the attention of American scholar by the name of John C. Trevor, and the rest is really history. From 1946 to 1956, archaeologists would discover a series of 12 caves containing hundreds of fragments and scrolls. That $340 handful of crumbling paper would be the first discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, to be fair, we don't know exactly how the Dead Sea Scrolls got in those 12 caves. There's several theories to their origin most of the scrolls are fragments of Old Testament books, okay? There is one little bitty piece of paper that's kind of pieced together and it's torn and, and it's actually two verses out of Mark chapter six. At least that's what they believe it to be. But all the other books are, are of the Old Testament nature or spiritual writing in nature of the Old Testament. The prominent theory about the Dead Sea Scrolls came to be. Now, in, in Scripture, you've heard about the Pharisees and the Sadducees because the Bible talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees always trying to accuse and catch Jesus. But we don't hear about this other group called the Essenes. Scripture doesn't mention them. They were a little bit more of a unique Jewish group of religious people. Um, they lived in more remote areas. Unlike the Pharisees, they actually took an oath of poverty and an oath of purity. Many of them... Um, took an oath of celibacy. And so about 100 years before Jesus was born, there was this spiritual practice that kind of popped up on the scene, and it was ceremonial bathing, okay? And it started to become a thing. Even in Jerusalem, there were a couple of places where you could experience ceremonial bathing. And it's believed that the Essenes adopted this practice of ceremonial bathing as a sign of repentance, dedication, commitment to serving God. Okay? So that pops up on the scene. It's interesting how God works. But about 100 years before Jesus, this ceremonial bathing started. Okay? So let's go 65 years after the birth of Jesus. The Jews are really tired of the Romans, and some spiritual stuff kind of happens. One of the Roman leaders wants to put his temple up, or wants to put a statue of himself up in the temple, and so it begins what's the Jewish revolt, or the Jewish rebellion, and Rome just rains down havoc on them, so much so that in 70 AD, the vast majority of Rome is destroyed, including the temple, which has never been rebuilt. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Okay, What they believe, the thought is that the Essenes fled the Romans and they went and lived and dwelled in these caves and there they left the remnants and those remnants are the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, So let's go back to John the Baptist. He shows up on the scene. He's been influenced by this group of Essenes who are very devout, they're very spiritual, they're very committed. They live out in the wilderness. They've committed themselves to purity committed themselves to celibacy, which, by the way, John the Baptist had done a lot of those things, and John adopts this practice of ceremonial bathing. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. The messenger was John the Baptist. This is Mark telling about the person of John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness. He preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Verse 5, all of Judea, all of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John 
And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. The second thing I want you to see here from Mark chapter 1 is that a move of God is not man-made. A lot of buildup to get to that. <laughs> but a move of God is not man-made. You don't have to. Many times you can't. You cannot manufacture a move of God. There was nothing fancy about what John was doing. There was nothing flashy. It was just a humble man of God preaching repentance, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching there's a Messiah that's coming. Here's what happened. John caught on fire for the Lord and people came from miles just to watch him burn. It was a move of God. It was not man-made. And in that, John borrowed this practice of ceremonial bathing, now called baptism. Even Mark says this, verse 4. He says, people should be baptized, and he uses that word, to show. People should be baptized to show that they'd repented from their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. So, even here, this explains that baptism is an outward sign to show. It's an outward sign of an inward obedience. Now, I understand. Some of you come from all kinds of churches like this. We have people from all kinds of backgrounds. Some of you, maybe when you were kids, were sprinkled. Maybe when you were a baby, you, whatever, they pour on you and try not to drown the kid. I, I don't know what kind of background you come from. Some of you maybe come from a background that believe that baptism has some salvation components attached to that. And when I hear Jesus say those words, go make disciples and baptize them, I understand where you're coming from. I, that's a thing. It's really, really, really important. You need to know this about me. I won't fight with you on that. I think Christians need to spend more time loving and less time arguing about if Adam had a belly button. But for me, I'm talking about for me, when you take all of the Bible, when you take all the stories, all of Scripture into context, Baptism should be the first step of obedience. Jesus said, go make disciples and baptize them. Go reach them and then baptize them. But I don't think salvation is depending upon getting wet. Meaning, baptism doesn't save me, but a saved person should be baptized. If I'm a believer, I should want to be baptized. I should want to tell my story. It's an outward showing. It's an outward expression of an inward obedience. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. You got my back. Baptism is also a sign of transition. It's a sign that something has changed. When you come up out of that water, you are changed. It's a sign that God has changed me. We think it has its roots in Exodus. When Moses and Israel crossed the Red Sea, they went into the Red Sea as slaves, and they came out of the Red Sea changed. Free people. It's a sign of change. I was dead in my sin. I was dry, a little crusty in spots, right? And then I'm submerged in the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the salvation of God. And when I come up out of the water, I am changed. It's physically showing and telling the story as a spiritual difference that's taken place on the inside. So Jesus had John baptize him as a ceremonial expression of obedience and change, transition, transition. 
it wasn't necessarily a baptism of repentance because Jesus didn't need to repent for anything. It was a sign that something is changing. And Mark does tell you that. So in verse 10, it says that Jesus came up out of the water. Verse 11, he hears the voice, you're my son whom I'm well pleased. And then verse 12, and I think the new living loses a little bit of the power. And so I want to grab it out of the New King James. Mark chapter 1, verse 12, it says immediately. There's that word. Mark will use that throughout the God. Suddenly, immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Jesus would come out of the water. He would hear those affirming words from his father. And Mark says, immediately, Jesus would transition into the wilderness. Verse 12, the Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and the angels took care of him. Now, Matthew and Luke, in their telling of this story, they add some details. Again, Mark's the first, Mark's the action guy. Matthew and Luke come in and go, well, hang on. Hang on, let's add, let's, let's add some more to the story there. It says that Jesus fasted. Before Jesus began his ministry, before Jesus transitioned into what God had for him, he took a season of prayer and fasting. Well, well isn't that funny? That's the season we're in. Before we get into the throes of 2023, what if we go through a time of prayer and fasting before we transition to what God has for you and I this year? What if we went through a season of prayer and fasting? So fasting is, it's a spiritual discipline. It's something that scripture says you need to do. Like you can't fast your way into heaven. It doesn't save you. So if I don't fast, God's not mad at me. No, but it's something that you and I need to do. Not because the church needs you to do it, because you and your spiritual growth, you need to do it. And it's for the purpose of getting closer to God. I'm going to give something up. I'm going to push away from something. Now, the vast majority of fasting pertains to dietary changes. Okay? When you read scripture and it talks about fasting, they're fasting from food. They're changing dietary things. Okay? But there are other things that you can push away from. There's other things that you can turn off. You can eliminate distractions for the focus of seeking God's face. So if you're a guest with us and you're new to Hillspring, I know this might seem a little bit weird, so just let me yell at them and you just take a time out here, right? Maybe this is a new idea for you. Why don't you think about it? What if? See, I, I kind of feel like when we fast in January, it's kind of like giving God first. God, there's 12 months, so I'm going to give you the first one. It's not a diet. But I'm telling you, man, when, when Jerry and I get to day five, seven, literally, by the time we're to day 21, I feel so good. I wake up earlier than my alarm clock does. I feel clear. I look at her and I go, why don't we do this more? She said, because you like tacos. Is she not wrong? I need you to repeat after me. I love BK. I saw what you did. You snuck Jesus in there. I don't blame you. I've even, and I did this on first Wednesday. What if we fasted from social media for a while? It was at that point, a young lady on first Wednesday got into the fetal position and started weeping.
So Pastor Matt and Cassie took a group of our college kids down to a conference down in Dallas, Fort Worth area. And he was texting me. Some of you have already heard this. <clears throat> but in 2012 is when depression, anxiety, right. counseling numbers increased. And really for the first time in history, there was an increased number of prescribing mental health prescription drugs to kids as early as 8, 9, and 10 years of age. 2012, I mean, there's a spike. And so when there's a spike, there's something there. What, what happened? What we think was social media existed before that, but you had to do it on your computer. You could be, have a Facebook account, but you, you built that on a laptop or a desktop or, or on a computer. But 2012, finally, the cell phones were big enough to house things we call apps. And so now, I had social media with me 24-7, unfiltered, unrestricted access. And that's when they begin to see this spike, particularly in young kids. And that's what's interesting. This is the group that's pushing the hardest stunt. I don't need to do that. I love you. Yeah, you do. Some of you, if you're like, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to do that. That's probably the one thing that you do need to give up. And the third thing we need to learn from Jesus is we should follow in his footsteps. If Jesus was baptized, we need to be baptized. If Jesus fasted, we need to fast. I hope you'll prayerfully join us over the 17 days as we finish this journey. We've already started. We'll actually end Wednesday, January 25th. And that means on Wednesday, some point later in that day, you can, you can break that fast of some sort. If you're like doing the Daniel fast, fruits and vegetables, your first time to ever do that, let me just give you some old BK advice. Don't break that fast with Ron's chili. I just wouldn't go down that route. <laughs> just don't think you're ready for that. <laughs> I hope you'll join us. Not because I ask you to. Because we need to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Here's the deal. If I have to convince you to do something, you're not really following Jesus anyway. If I have to sell you on it, you're not really following Christ anyway. How you doing? New year, new me. New year, new you. How's your relationship with God? I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.